Transit. How y'all doing today? Good, good. All right, hey, we're going to be uh, this morning continuing our series as that video showed, going through the book of Exodus. The sermon series title is Redemption, and today we're going to be in Exodus 11, uh, all the way up to chapter 12, verse 32. So we got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, but if you were here last week, you know that Jeff unpacked Exodus chapter 7 through 10, looking at the first nine plagues to fall upon Egypt. And what he uh, unpacked there, what we saw there, was uh, with each plague, God was displaying and declaring his lordship and power over Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt, that there would be no doubt who the Lord was after uh, those nine plagues. And um, the confusing part for me last week uh, sitting under that text was not necessarily for the 21st century mind, the, the, maybe the strange judgment via the plagues that God enacted upon uh, a Pharaoh in Egypt, but what was confusing to me was the mercy and the patience and the kindness that he showed time and time uh, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had nine times to repent, nine times to let God's people go and listen, spare his country the plagues, but he didn't. He hardened his heart. He dug his heels in the sand and refused to repent. You might be saying, well, hey, Nick, doesn't also say that the Lord hardened his heart as well? Yes. The answer is yes. And that's what we talked a little bit uh, last week is that, that mystery between God's sovereignty and man's free will, where just as uh, Pharaoh was morally responsible for hardening his heart and refusing to repent, it says this in Exodus 9, 16, but for this purpose... The Lord talking about Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What we learned last week about this great I am is that in a mysterious way, he is sovereign over even evil choices that, that he gives to, to man. Evil choice that he gives to man, and, and his glory is displayed even through that. That's how sovereign and in control our Lord, this great I am is. And uh, we don't have enough time to articulate or unpack that. But this week, what we're looking at, that was last week. There were nine plagues last week, nine opportunities for Pharaoh to repent. And what we're looking at in our text today is the last and final plague to fall upon the land of Egypt, the killing of all the firstborn. Uh, it was the plague that finally loosened Pharaoh's grip on the Israelites. And to be honest, this text today that we're looking at is, is bloody, uh, this text is, is messy. This text is, is terrifying in a lot of respects because there's two things that this text presents to us. God's kindness, God's kindness and God's severity. God's grace and God's justice. God's mercy and God's wrath. The Lion of Judah, like we were singing this morning, and the precious Lamb of God who took our sins upon himself. That's what we're presented with this morning, and it would serve us well to reflect on both attributes of God because one of those attributes is totally missing in our culture today, where a common theme, a common refrain in our culture is that God is a giant teddy bear in the sky who just dishes out lollipops and candy to everyone and under no circumstances would ever, would ever, would ever punish sin because if he did, he wouldn't be a God of love. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. And it's logically absurd to believe that because if he's a God of love, he has to. It necessitates church. It necessitates that he punishes sin and wickedness. And we're not supposed to necessarily like that. We're supposed to believe it because it's, it's the truth. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what this text presents us with, where we see God's kindness and that he provides the Passover lamb to spare all the firstborn of Israel. But we also see his fierce judgment fall upon those in Egypt who are not covered by the blood of the lamb. And so 
what we learn in this text is God's wrath against human sin and wickedness is as just as it is certain. It is as just as it is certain. And what this text confronts every person in this room with today in our lives that we need to answer is this, is that it is not a matter of if his wrath is coming, it is a matter of when it comes, church, will it fall upon us or the substitute, the Passover lamb that God and his grace and his mercy and his love has provided for us? That's the question that faces all of us this morning with this text. So let's pray and we'll dive on in. Heavenly Father, God, you are the lion and the lamb. May we reflect on that, Father. May we reflect this morning on on the cost that you paid to redeem us, to purchase us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you were willing to send your son on the cross as our substitute to bear our sins, to bear our penalty, our wrath, so that we could be spared and reconciled to you. Thank you, God, for that. May we be found grateful for that, Lord. But may, may we not forget the cost involved with our redemption and our freedom in you, Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Would you come in power, stir our affections for you, Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, sent to, to bear and take away our sins? And would you increase mightily? Would you increase mightily? And would I decrease? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so hey, we're going to be jumping around. we got a lot to cover. We're not going to cover all of chapter 11 and and chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be starting in uh, chapter 11, verse uh, 4. So if you have your Bibles, open that up. Verses will be on the screen as well. Here we go, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. This is Moses again standing in front of Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh. Don't know who that is. Uh, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow to me and saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And so what we see here is something we've seen nine times before. Moses and Aaron get a word from the Lord that they're they're to confront Pharaoh with. They stand before Pharaoh, and and, and they they predict judgment coming. But what's so interesting about what Moses is is saying here, the tenth time he's predicting judgment coming, is there's something missing here. There's something missing. He said something nine times leading up here. There's a little phrase here that's not here anymore, and that's, let my people go. That phrase is missing from what Moses says to Pharaoh here. Why is that? Because Pharaoh missed his chance, church. There was no opportunity to repent. God was done counting to three, and God didn't count to three in his kindness and his patience. He counted to nine said, repent, Pharaoh, repent, spare your people this. And he didn't. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, and the Lord hardened his heart as well. And I, uh, I want to challenge us this morning. If you're here today and you're hardening your heart before God, and he's continually showed his kindness and his grace and his repentance to you, I, wanna, I just want to challenge you with this. Do you know how dangerous that is? 
Do you know how dangerous it is to add one more callous to an already calloused heart? If you're here today, would you soften your heart? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, is what scripture says. Church is a dangerous, dangerous game to play. The Lord was done counting with Pharaoh. There was no chance for repentance. There was no let my people go. And there's three things that stick out to me about what the details of this plague. One is that it is certain. It is certain. There is no if this is coming. It's when God's wrath is coming. Moses is, 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 is this is the forecast, Pharaoh. You know, for me, I used to live in a, a, an apartment complex after college where uh, there is always a question when you park illegally, because there's never any parking, will I get towed or not? Maybe the tow truck will miss my car. Maybe today they're not towing. Maybe I'll play that game. And twice I had to run full sprint out of my house and, and ask the guy, pay the guy to one lower. And the second time I didn't ask him to pay, I just hopped in my car and blared on the horn as like my, my Mazda protege is in the air. And I'm just like, uh, 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 and he lowered me down, right? And so for Pharaoh, there isn't any if this is happening. There's no, there's no hey, let's park illegally and see what happens. God's wrath and justice is certain. Now with this tenth plague, it's coming. Verse 1, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. The second thing that sticks out to me is God's wrath is horrible. This is awful, church. I had a really difficult time preparing for this message. This is a hard text for us to come to grips with. Hebrews 10.31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It says in Exodus, in the passage we just read, uh, there is going to be this great, agonizing, awful cry that had never been heard before or since. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. His judgment is just as it is certain, and it is terrifying. It is awful. Do we know what we have been saved from you might be saying, "Oh, Nick, come on, man! This is this is uh, this old-fashioned of you. How dare you talk like that?" Well, hey, let's go to the words of our Savior. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Luke twelve five, talking to his disciples about the fear of man, and he says, "I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him." May we reflect this morning on God's kindness and his severity and may both lead us to repent this morning. It's what Romans 11, 22 through 23 says. We see in our passages that God's wrath against our sin is to be feared. The great I am is not to be toyed with. This is a horrible thing that, listen, didn't have to happen if Pharaoh would have repented. Three, God's wrath is just. It is just Will the just judge of the world do right? Yes, he always judges justly and rightly. For 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved and brutalized for the advancement, comfort, and pleasures of the Egyptians. Slaves for 400 years. And what Moses is saying here, what he's telling Pharaoh, is there's going to be a complete reversal of fortunes here. Complete reversal. He says, no longer will it be our kids, Israel's kids, being chucked into the Nile. And being killed, it won't be our firstborn, Pharaoh. It's going to be your firstborn. No longer will the Israelites come and bow down at Pharaoh and plead with Pharaoh and his officials for mercy. It's actually going to be the opposite, where the officials are going to come throw themselves at the feet and say, please get out of our land. 
No longer would the Egyptians increase their wealth off the backs of the Israelites, but the Israelites will get that back. And, and, and verses 1 through 3, we didn't have time to read, but uh, God, God tells the Israelites, go and ask the Egyptians upon leaving for, for wealth that, that you guys work for, that you guys toil for silver and gold. And lastly, what we see is that the Lord's going to have his way and the people of God will go free. And, and, and I know uh, as I was studying this text that uh, for the 21st century uh, Western mind in America and the day and age we live in, we say, man, how in the world could God do this? How could God do this? How could he be a God of love and do this? Miroslav uh, Volf is a Christian theologian from Croatia, and uh, my man, he witnessed firsthand, firsthand the horrors and atrocities of war. And he says, he says uh, this, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shall day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. I could not imagine God not being angry. And then I have the, this quote up on the screen. One of his theses that he's so popular for is he's saying that belief in God, being a giant uh, uh, teddy bear in the sky who will not punish sin, actually perpetuates the problem of violence in our world. That if God is not going to wield the sword of justice, then I have to take that sword in my hands and enact it myself. Saying that actually perpetuates, perpetuates the problem. This is what he says. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nine violence cannot resist using violence themselves. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent. You guys catch that? How often do we think this? We think the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believing in a God who judges. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. And he says this about his thesis. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in actually divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that, listen, it would take the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that, thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for us to come up with this idea that God is just a giant teddy bear in the sky who would not punish sin. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, that is our incentive not to take violence into our own hands. This is what he's saying. He's saying it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that. And in a, in a 
scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And so the question then we're faced with, uh, when we're faced with the evil of this world, you just have to watch the news for a day, if not just one week, even this past week, to see that we're treating each other awfully. When we're faced with the evil of this world, the question then becomes not how could God punish sin, but how in the world could he not? How in the world could he not? Being a God of love necessitates necessitates that he be a God of justice. And so, however, here's the problem we all face in this room, is it's easy for us to be like, evil's always out there. Of course, God will punish the evil out there. But what Jesus Christ makes crystal clear in his gospels is we got a big problem in here as well. That this is evil, that out of our hearts, out of our hearts flow all sorts of evil thoughts. That, that the ethic that God holds us to is, is not just the external, but it's the internal. Hey, what, what are you thinking in stop and go traffic, right? What, what, what's, what's floating around in that mind of yours? What, what do we do about the evil here internally? That's what Jesus said. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And so returning to our text, Moses leaves Pharaoh in hot anger, it says, in hot anger. And one commentator uh, was, was uh, and again, the text doesn't necessarily tell us, but the commentator was suggesting that Moses was so mad that this is happening because it didn't have to happen. Moses knows the severity. He knows God's wrath is horrifying. It is certain. It is just. And he leaves Pharaoh in hot anger because it's, 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 it's Pharaoh's fault. He hardened his heart. He was stubborn, evil man who refused to repent. And this, uh, God's wrath fell upon his country and upon, upon his own household as well. Moses leaves in hot anger, and the Lord gives, uh, gives Moses and Aaron instructions on how they and the Israelites are to be spared this coming wrath as well. Got a long text ahead of us. Stay with me here. Exodus 12, 1 through 14. The Lord then said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this shall be for you the beginning of months. This should be the first month of the year for you. Something so major, something so uh, monumental to your faith is about to happen that you're going to reorient your calendar so the first month is going to uh, uh, land on this month. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what can each, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. 
So we have a lot to unpack there, but before I jump into the details, imagine Moses. If I were to put myself in Moses' shoes upon hearing this, I would have some issues with, God, with what God is relaying to me. I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. God, we're not the bad guys. Why do we have to do this? What, what, why do we need to be punished? We're not the evil ones. We are the, we are the slaves. We're the ones who for 400 years have been oppressed and, and, and used and brutalized. Why do we need to do this? The evil that needs to be punished is out there, not in these households. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The scripture doesn't say that was the reaction, but if I was Moses, that's probably how I would react. And what we see in Scripture, when it looks back on uh, Israel's time in Egypt, we see that they were not just slaves in bondage, but they were also sinners. That the slave, the sufferer, was also the sinner. That the same gods the Egyptians bowed down to and worshipped, the gods of their culture, the Israelites bowed down to and worshipped as well. This is what Joshua, 40 years later, Joshua is leading the people of God into the promised land. This is what he says. This is like a brave heart speech. I love this. Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the great I am, the one who rescued us from bondage. We're not going to mess around with silly golden calves. The great I am is our redeemer, our rescuer, our liberator, our savior, our Lord. That's who we worship. Now, you need to choose this day. Are you going to turn back to the gods you worshiped in Egypt? Or are you looking forward to your redeemer and your rescuer and worship him alone? Make that choice. I love that. What's what he's saying. But what we see with that is we see that Israel was no better off than the Egyptians. They were just as guilty before a holy and righteous God as were the pagans, as were the, the pagan Egyptians. And in the same way, aren't we all guilty? We're sinners. What scripture says, we're sinners by nature and choice. The ultimate, highest authority in the universe, we have committed high treason against him. Do we know who God is? See, the problem we have with this is we don't understand who God is. I mean, we have a bigger, more accurate view of his holiness, his righteousness, and how that necessitates certain things in our lives, and that when we uh, absolutely disobey, disregard, and defy him, that there's consequences, church. There's consequences to that. And that's what sin is. Sin is just disobedience, defiance, and just disregard to this holy, righteous God of the universe who, listen, he created the world good. He created the world uh, uh, perfect and good, Adam and Eve, to, to know him, to be in a, a, a vertical, personal relationship with him that would extend to a horizontal love relationship to others so that uh, um, Adam and Eve would go, and wherever they went, God's presence would go with them, and that wherever humanity went, life would flourish, would thrive for God's glory. That was the original plan. And uh, y'all are military, a bunch of you are, so uh, I know some of you own properties that you rent out or your renters yourself. And uh, the landlord-tenant relationship goes uh, like this. Uh, a landlord uh, buys a property or owns a house. 
He's got some pride in ownership. Maybe he's put some sweat equity into that property to make it nice and cozy, and he wants to welcome people into his, into his house, right? And uh, obviously to pay off his mortgage, it's an investment, but also he wants it to be a, a, you know, a win-win, right? And so the landlord screens some tenants, and finally he finds people that he wants to live into his house, and so live in his house. And what they do is they do a walk through the property, walk through the property, and then they, they meet together and they sign this thing called a lease agreement, a lease agreement. And what the lease agreement is basically the landlord telling the tenants, hey, here's the rules. In case you forget, in case you forget, this is my house. You're, you're guests here, and yes, you're paying, but, but stay in these lanes, and it will go well for you. Stay in these lanes, and it will go well for you. It's my house. You do not have as much ownership over this as I do. I, I called the shots. And they signed the lease agreement. Well, I mean, I got a friend who's got a property out of state, and uh, he's got just a, I mean, one of the, just a nightmare story that happened to him. And uh, uh, out of state, um, uh, and uh, not, not, you know, totally, they're the property manager, wasn't the best, best of property managers. And all of a sudden, they find out that their tenants have a pig living in their house. And I was joking with the guy, I was like, man, you didn't put like a pig, no pig clause in the lease agreement? That was your view, Right. It wasn't in the clause, so okay, yeah, we can put a pig, a pig in your house. You know what kind of damage a pig does? Like a 200-pound, I don't know how big pigs are, but a pig, a pig, people. They're ridiculous. Destroyed his yard, destroyed the house. That's, that's the least of it. And then these people all of a sudden decide, hey, you know what? This whole rent thing's overrated. I know we signed this lease agreement. We're not paying rent anymore, but we're not going to move out. Your move, landlord. And in this state, if there's a tie, if you will, between the landlord and the tenant, tie always goes to the renter. So it took them months of not collecting any rent, these people destroying their houses, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lawyer fees later, they finally get them evicted and kicked out of their house. And upon leaving, they travel out of state, they go to the property, and upon walking back into that property, I cannot even speak of what those people did to that house, that obscene, that awful, the way they trashed it and destroyed it took the lease agreement, uttered disregard for the landlord, defying him, ripped it in half, said, we're going to do what we want. This is our house. This is my life. I called the shots. And I can't think of a better description for our attitude to the Lord Almighty. A holy and a just God. We turn our, with the backs he's given us, turn our back on him, tear up the lease agreement and say, you don't call the shots. We can do what we want. We're all guilty of that, church. We're all guilty of that. So scripture makes crystal clear. Nature and choice were sinners by that. And open defiance to the highest authority what scripture says. The consequence of our sin is death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And that means that sin must be paid its wages. Justice must be satisfied. And that death is not just a physical death, but a spiritual, eternal death as well. Separation from God. God's original plan was not separation, was intimacy, relationship, love between humanity and God. And what sin brings about because of God's holiness and his righteousness is, 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 is a separation, a gap there. And so what we see in our text with God's killing of the firstborn in Egypt, it was simply him speeding up what was already coming. Speeding up what was already coming. And this text shows us that this tragedy would fall upon the Israelites as well. It was going to happen. Unless God in his undeserved, 
keyword, undeserved kindness, took it upon himself to provide a way to be spared what they deserve. And what did God provide? In one word, he, pro- he provided the Israelites a substitute. A substitute. The details of what uh, God told Moses and Aaron to tell to the Israelites was go take a lamb, a lamb from your household, not just any lamb. Listen, an innocent lamb without blemish, innocent meaning doesn't deserve the penalty that's going to be enacted upon it, doesn't deserve death, innocent, innocent. Take that lamb and I need you to kill it. And as this blood is being poured out, I need you to dip a branch of hyssop in that blood. I need you to take that, and I need you to sprinkle it on the doorpost and the lintel of the front door of your house because I'm coming on the 14th day. I'm coming at midnight. And there's one thing I'm looking for. Is this house covered by the blood of the lamb, or is it not? Or is it not? That's what God was looking for. Israel's salvation was substitution substitution. What that lamb took on in those households was the, the, the sin of those people living in that household. It was their penalty to be paid, their death, their punishment. There was a transfer that, that, that took place. We call this substitutionary atonement. This is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He, he, it's called the great exchange. He took our place. The innocent, spotless lamb of God would absorb our sins He would take our sins upon himself, then pay the penalty of the forsakenness of the Father so that we, so that we who would put our trust in the substitute, the Passover lamb, would be forgiven, justified, declared righteous before God and reconciled to God, forgiven and set free, redeemed, redeemed. And so why were the Israelites spared when God saw the blood? Because Listen, when God saw the blood on the door, he saw that sin, sin's wages were paid, that justice was satisfied, the Israelites' sin were taken care of. The punishment that was due the Israelites was already enacted upon the Passover lamb. And this is what uh, theologian Arthur Pink says. I love this quote. Direct me as I was preparing for this. When the executioner of God's judgment went out that night and saw the blood upon the houses of the Israelites, he entered not. Why? Because death had already done its work there. The innocent had died in place of the guilty, and thus justice was satisfied. Listen, to punish twice for the same crime would be unjust. To exact payment twice for the same debt is unlawful. Even so, those within the blood-sprinkled house were secure. I love this. Blessed, blessed truth is this. It is not merely God's mercy, but his righteousness, which is now on the side of his people. Justice itself demands the acquittal of every believer in Christ Jesus. Is that good news or what? Justice demands your acquittal, church. When the enemy comes and tries to, man, just ah, make you pay again, condemn you, retry your case. You say, my case was tried 2,000 years ago at Calvary. The blood of the lamb was spread on the cross. My account has been paid for. You can't charge me twice. Who can dare bring a charge against God's elect? Christ's work is sufficient. The Passover lamb, our substitute, we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Because there's one thing that God was looking for that night. He was looking for the blood of the lamb. Notice what God did not say. God didn't go to Moses and Aaron and say, hey, these Israelites are a bunch of turds. You go tell them, you go rally them and say, hey, you can get your act together. You go, you go whip them into shape. Say on the 10th day, 
Go to them on the 10th day. They have four days. And I want them to keep track of their good works versus their bad works. I don't know, maybe an Excel sheet, some kind of report card for four days. See how good they're doing. And then at midnight, make sure before midnight, they staple that bad boy to their front door. And here's the deal. I'm coming at midnight. I'm going to bring my flashlight. And I'm going to look at their good works. Okay, Nick, let's see here. Oh, uh, you had a quiet time. You missed a quiet time yesterday? Oh, man, you didn't pray in that quiet time. And you actually skipped three chapters in your Bible reading plan? What's up with that, man? You fought with your wife? You're short with your kids? You said what to whom in traffic? I don't know if I can pass over this house. God wasn't looking at the, 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 the righteousness of those in the house. He was looking for the blood of the lamb spilled out for them. He was looking to see if justice was satisfied. That's what he was looking for, church. And how silly of us when we try to staple and put our trust in our report card stapled to our front door rather than spreading out Christ's blood on our front door and saying we're covered and we can rest in that. We can rest in that. It's sufficient. God passed over those houses, not based on meritorious works of the Israelites, but based on the innocent blood of the lamb shed for those in that household. Hebrews 9.22, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. God in his grace provided the sacrifice that the Israelites needed for their redemption. It's calling them to forsake trust in your good works and place it elsewhere. Uh, salvation is not introspective. It's, 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 it's outside of ourselves. It's retrospective. It's taking the focus off of ourselves and our good work and throwing ourselves at the foot of the cross. And the sacrifice that Christ has provided saying, he is my redeemer and let the world know there's going to be no confusion of who brought about my salvation. But who redeemed me? And so this sacrifice, which is interesting here, was also to be a meal. It's also to be commemorated, that they were not just to slay the Passover lamb, but it was to become sustenance to them. It's supposed to be a feast. Uh, them uh, eating throughout Scripture is, is fellowship, fellowship. It's them, in a way, acquiring what also has been sacrificed for them and making it their own, kind of an act of faith, kind of like what we do here after the sermon with communion. Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm your sustenance. I'm your nourishment. The sacrifice was also to become sustenance. And this Passover meal was to be commemorated and remembered for generations upon generations. They were not to forget every single year. They were to remember this Passover event. Why? Because they're like us and they're quick to forget. They're quick to forget God's kindness uh, uh, God's favor in their life, the work that God did, uh, it's easy for them to look back and say, hey, man, we're awesome. We brought ourselves out of Egypt. Or, or what we see in uh, a couple chapters forward is that they are quick to forget. And they replace Pharaoh with God and God with Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, they're saying, man, I miss Pharaoh. I miss the slavery there and all the good food we have. And now God's, God's the tyrant. How often do we do that? So Moses and Aaron went to Israel and reported the good news. This is good news, church. This is what I heard uh, yesterday at the men's breakfast. We we're talking about this. This quote this is from Matt Chandler. He says, For news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. Stated differently, for news to be really, really, really good, it has to invade really, really, really bad spaces. And look at what happens next when they hear the good news. We're skipping ahead here. Exodus 12, 27 through 28. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. 
And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The proper response to the gospel, the good news of God's salvation, is hands lifted high in, in, in honor and adoration for God. Saying, I know uh, with the blood of the lamb, I know that that was my punishment, that that lamb bore, that innocent lamb bore my sins and paid my death. Thank you, God, that I have gone free because you provided you provided what I needed, my salvation. And that leads them to praise. But then, not just praise, but obedience. They do what God tells them to do. May this be our response today upon hearing this message. Praise and adoration for the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who was slain for us. And may that lead us to delightful obedience, repentance from willful sin we're living in, delightful obedience in him. And then concluding, wrapping up, not concluding, but wrapping up our text here, Exodus 12, 29 through 32. This is the Passover night. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. What we see here is the horrific judgment of God falls upon Egypt, and yet sweet redemption upon Israel. God's the Lion of Judah, and he's also the Passover Lamb that was slain for us. May we reflect this morning on both his kindness and his severity. God stayed true to his people. The blood of the Lamb was his purchase price purchasing the Israelites out of their bondage, out of their slavery in Egypt. And uh, I'll slowly wrap up with this Arthur Pink quote again. It says this, It is not until the converted sinner applies the blood that it avails for him. Did you guys catch that? An Israelite might have selected a proper lamb, he might have slain it, but unless he had applied its blood to the outside of the door, the angel of death would have entered his house and slain his firstborn. In like manner today, it is not enough for me to know that the precious blood of the Lamb of God uh, was shed for the remissions of sins. A Savior provided is not sufficient. He must be received. He must be received. There must be faith in his blood, Romans 3.25, and faith is a personal thing. I must exercise faith. I must, by faith, take the blood and shelter beneath it. I must place it between my sins and the thrice holy God, and I must rely upon it as the sole ground of my acceptance with, with him. Savior provided is not sufficient. He must be received. Church, have you received Jesus Christ this morning as your substitute, as your Passover lamb slain for your sins, bearing your punishment that you justly deserved so that you could be reconciled to a God of love, a God of love who sent Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, to take away your sins and mine so that when you and I receive him, we receive eternal Life, we receive what we don't deserve. Jesus Christ got what we deserve. Now we get what we don't deserve. All the blessings that flow through our union with him. Eternal life as a free gift that comprises unequal joy and peace, freedom and deliverance from sin and death, friendship and fellowship with God, eternity, eternal rewards, and a new world. All this is promised to you freely in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you reach out to him in faith today? 
and realize that his sacrifice is sufficient for you. His sacrifice is sufficient. That's the sole ground of our acceptance and our faith with him is the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, taking our place on the cross. And yes, this has been a tough passage we've been working through this morning. And obviously running, working through this passage leads us to ask the question, how in the world could God kill the firstborn in Egypt? But might I present to you a far better question to conclude our time? I think a far better question for, for us to ask would be, why in the world would this God send his only beloved begotten son, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, to die in the place of a wretched and ruined sinner like myself? That's the question. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. There was an option where there was no substitutionary atonement for you and me. That was an option. But God chose to send his son on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to him. He did that out of love for you and for me. Church, where we respond in faith this morning. He did that for you, for me, out of love, taking our sins, our sacrifice upon ourselves. And I'll conclude with Isaiah 53, 5-7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. On the cross of Jesus Christ where the Passover lamb was slain, that's where we see the beautiful marriage of God's love and God's justice. God's love and his justice may both lead us to repent and lead us to adoration here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we uh, come before you <sighs> grateful, Lord. We thank you, God. Thank you, God, that um, you sent your son. You sent your son to bear the wretchedness of our sins while we were sinning, while we were sinners, while we were defying and disregarding you out of love for us, you sent your son on a rescue mission for us to purchase us with his blood spread out on the beams of that cross for us so that all who trust in him would come to know you and the, the abundant eternal life that can only be found through trusting in you, Jesus. So thank you, God, for that. May your church be found grateful. May we uh, never forget the price that was paid for our redemption. It was a costly, costly redemption. May we never forget that, Lord. So may we just be blown away by your love this morning. Spirit, come upon us. And, uh, and may reflecting on uh, the atoning work of Jesus, may that lead us to, to celebrate. May it lead us to worship. May it lead us to praise. And may it also lead us to be a people who have been redeemed to redeem others. May we be a people who go and share this good news in bad spaces. Father, please, Holy Spirit, come and help us. Help us to repent uh, and to see you for how truly valuable you are. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.